Volume Three, Chapter Four of The Smuggler by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four. Sir Robert Croyland himself did not return to Harborn House till the hands of the clock pointed out to every one that went through the hall that it was twenty minutes past the usual dinner hour, and though he tried to be as expeditious as he could, he was yet fully ten minutes longer in dressing than usual. He was nervous, he was agitated, all the events of that day had shaken and affected him. He was angry with his servant, and several times he gave the most contradictory orders. Although for years he had been undergoing a slow and gradual change under the painful circumstances in which he had been placed, and had, from the gay, rash, somewhat noisy and overbearing country gentleman, dwindled down into the cold, silent, pompous and imperative man of family, yet the alteration during that day had been so great and so peculiar that the valet could not help remarking it, and wondering if his master was ill. Sir Robert tried to soothe his look and compose his manner for the drawing-room, however, and when he entered, he gazed round for Sir Edward Digby, observing aloud, "'Why, I thought soldiers were more punctual. However, as it happens, today I am glad Sir Edward is not down.' "'Down?' cried Mrs. Barbara, who had a grand objection to dinners being delayed. "'Why, he was out. But you could expect no better, for yesterday you were so long that the fish was done to rags, so I ordered it not to be put in till he made his appearance.' "'I told you, my dear aunt, that he said he might not be back before dinner,' replied her niece, "'and therefore it will be vain to wait for him. He desired me to say so, papa.' "'Oh, yes, Zara knows all about it,' said Mrs. Barbara, with a shrewd look. "'They were talking together for ten minutes in the library, "'and I cannot get her to tell me what it was about. "'It is, indeed, conscience that makes cowards of us all, "'and had the fair girl's conversation with her new friend "'been on any other subject than that to which it related, "'had it been about love, marriage, arms, or divinity, she would have found no difficulty in parrying her aunt's observations, however, mal à propos, they might have been. At present, however, she was embarrassed by doubts of the propriety of what she was doing, more especially as she felt sure that her father would be inquisitive and suspicious if the tale the maid had told was true. Acting, however, as she not unfrequently did, in any difficulty, she met Mrs. Barbara's innuendos at once, replying, "'Indeed, I shall not say anything about it to anyone, my dear aunt. "'I will manage some matters for myself, "'and the only thing I shall repeat is Sir Edward's last dying speech, "'which was to the effect that he feared he might be detained "'till after our dinner hour, "'but would be back as soon as ever he could "'and trusted my father would not wait.' "'Do you know where he is gone and why?' "'asked Sir Robert Croyland in a much quieter tone than she expected.' But poor Zara was still puzzled for an answer, and as her only resource, she replied vaguely, "'Something about some of the smugglers, I believe.' "'Then had he any message or intelligence brought him?' inquired Sir Robert Croyland. "'I do not know. Oh, yes, I believe he had,' replied his daughter, in a hesitating tone and with a cheek that was beginning to grow red. "'He spoke with one of the soldiers at the corner of the road. I know.' "'and, oh, yes, I saw a man ride up with a letter.' "'That was after he was gone,' observed Mrs. Barbara, "'but Sir Robert paid little attention, "'and ringing, ordered dinner to be served. "'Could we see into the breasts of others, "'we should often save ourselves a great deal of unnecessary anxiety. 
Zara forgot that her father was not as well aware that Sir Edward Digby was Leighton's dearest friend as she was, but in truth all that he concluded, either from the pertinent remarks of Mrs. Barbara or from Zara's embarrassment, was that the young baronet had been making a little love to his daughter, which, to say sooth, was a consummation that Sir Robert Croyland was not a little inclined to see. In about a quarter of an hour more the dinner was announced, and the master of the house, his sister, and Zara sat down together. Hardly had the fish and soup made any progress when the quick canter of Sir Edward Digby's horse put his fair confidant out of her anxiety, and in a few minutes after he appeared himself and apologised gracefully to his host for having been too late. "'You must have waited for me, I fear,' he added, "'for it is near an hour after the time, "'but I thought it absolutely necessary, "'from some circumstances I heard, "'to go over and see my colonel "'before he returned to Hythe, "'and then I was detained.' "'Pray, who does command your regiment?' "'asked Mrs. Barbara. "'But Sir Edward Digby was, at that moment, "'busily engaged in taking his seat by Zara's side, "'and he did not hear.' The lady repeated the question when he was seated, but then he replied, "'No, I thank you, my dear madam, no soup to-day, a solid meal always after a hard ride, and I have galloped till I have almost broken my horse's wind. By the way, Sir Robert, I hope you found my bay a pleasant goer. I have only ridden him twice since I bought him, though he cost two hundred guineas.' "'He is well worth the money,' replied the baronet. "'A very powerful animal, bore me like a feather,' "'and I ride a good weight.' "'Have your own horses come back?' asked the young officer with a laugh. Sir Robert Croyland answered in the negative, adding, "'And that reminds me I must write to my brother "'to let Edith have his carriage to-morrow to bring her back, "'for mine are gone, coach, horses, and all.' "'Edith to-morrow?' exclaimed Mrs. Barbara in surprise. "'Why, I thought she was going to stay four or five days.' "'She's coming back to-morrow, Bab,' replied Sir Robert sharply and instantly turned the conversation. During the rest of the evening, Sir Edward Digby remained very constantly by fair Zara's side, and moreover he paid her most particular attention, in so marked a manner that both Sir Robert Croyland and Mrs. Barbara thought matters were taking their course very favourably. The father busied himself in writing a letter and one or two notes, which he pronounced to be of consequence, as indeed they really were, while the aunt worked diligently and discreetly at embroidering, not interrupting the conference of her niece and their guest above ten times in a minute. Sir Edward, indeed, kept himself within all due and well-defined rules. He never proceeded beyond what a great master of the art has pronounced to be making love, a course of small, quiet attentions, not so pointed as to alarm, nor so vague as to be misunderstood. Strange to say, Zara was very much obliged to him for following such a course, as it gave an especially good pretext for intimacy, for whispered words and quiet conversation, and even for a little open seeking for each other's society, which would have called observation, if not inquiry, upon them, had not her companion's conduct been what it was. She thought fit to attribute it in her own mind entirely to his desire of communicating to her, without attracting notice, whatever he had learned, that could in any way affect her sister's fate, and she judged it a marvellous good device that they should appear for the time as lovers, with full powers on both parts, to withdraw from that position whenever it suited them. Poor girl, 
she knew not how far she was entangling herself. Sir Edward Digby, in the meanwhile, took no alarming advantage of his situation. The whispered word was almost always of Edith or of Leighton. He never spoke of Zara herself or of himself, or of his own feelings. Not a word could denote to her that he was making love, though his whole demeanour had very much that aspect to those who sat and looked on. Or those who sit and look on, what a world they see, and what a world they don't see. Ever more than those who play the game, be they shrewd as they may. Ever less than the cards would show, were they turned up. By fits and snatches, he communicated to his fair companion while he was playing with this ball of gold thread, or winding and unwinding that piece of crimson silk, as much of what had passed between himself and Sir Henry Leighton as he thought necessary, and then he asked her to sing, as her aunt had given him a quiet hint that her niece did sometimes do such a thing, saying in a low tone, while he preferred the request, "'Pray go on with the song, though I may interrupt you sometimes with questions not quite relevant to the subject.' "'I understand, I quite understand,' answered Zara. "'But it may be a question whether that sweet girl really quite understood either herself or him. "'It is impossible that any two free hearts can go on long holding such intimate and secret communion "'on subjects deeply interesting to both, without being drawn together by closer bonds. "'Then perhaps they fancy can ever be established between them, "'unless there be something inherently repulsive on one part or the other.' Propinquity is certainly much in the matter of love, but there are circumstances not rarely occurring in human life which mightily abridge the process, and such are difficulties and dangers experienced together, a common struggle for a common object, but, more than all, mutual and secret communion with and aid of each other in things of deep interest. The confidence that is required, the excitement of imagination, the unity of effort, and of purpose, the rapid exercise of mind to catch the half-uttered thought, the enforced candour from want of time, which admits of no disguise or circumlocution, the very mystery itself, all cast that magic chain round those so circumstanced, within which they can hardly escape from the power of love. Nine times out of ten they never try, and however Zara Croyland might feel, she rose willingly enough to sing, while Sir Edward Digby leaned over her chair as she sat at the instrument, which in those days supplied the place of that which is now absurdly enough termed in England a piano. Her voice, which was fine though not very powerful, wavered a little as she began, from emotions of many kinds. She wished to sing well, but she sang worse than she might have done, yet quite well enough to please Sir Edward Digby, though his ear was refined by art and good nature. Nevertheless, though he listened with delight and felt the music deeply, he forgot not his purpose, and between each stanza asked some question, obtaining a brief reply, but I will not so interrupt the course of an old song, and will give the interrogatory a separate place. The Lady's Song Oh, there be many, many griefs in this world's sad career, that shun the day, that fly the gaze, and never, never meet the ear. But what is darkest, darkest of them all, the pang of love betrayed, the hope of youth all fleeting by, spring flowers that early, early fade. But there are griefs, ay, griefs as deep, the friendship turned to hate, 
and deeper still, and deeper still, repentance come too late, too late. The doubt of those we love and more, the rayless dull despair, when trusted hearts are worthless found, and all our dreams are air, but air. Deep in each bosom's secret cell, the hermit's sorrows lie, and thence, unheard on earth, they raise the voice of prayer on high, on high. Oh, there be many, many griefs in this world's sad career that shun the day, that fly the gaze, and never, never meet the ear. Thus sang the lady, and one of her hearers at least was delighted with the sweet voice and the sweet music, and the expression which she gave to the whole. But though he listened with deep attention both to words and tones, as long as her lips moved, yet when the mere instrumental part of the music recommenced, which was the case between every second and third stanza, and the symphonetic parts of every song were somewhat long in those days, he instantly remembered the object with which he had first asked her to sing, little thinking that such pleasure would be his reward. And bending down his head, as if he were paying her some lover-like compliment on her performance, he asked her quietly, as I have said before, a question or two closely connected with the subject on which both their minds were at that moment principally bent. Thus, at the first pause, he inquired, "'Do you know, did you ever see, in times long past, "'a gentleman by the name of Ward, a clergyman, "'a good and clever man, but somewhat strange and wild?' "'No,' answered Zara, looking down at the keys of the harpsichord. "'I know no one of that name,' and she recommenced the song. "'When her voice again ceased, "'the young officer seemed to have thought farther, "'and he asked, in the same low tone, "'Did you ever know a gentleman answering that description?' His features must once have been good, somewhat strongly marked, but fine and of an elevated expression, with a good deal of wildness in the eye, but a peculiarly bland and beautiful smile when he is pleased, too remarkable to be overlooked or forgotten. "'Can you be speaking of Mr. Osborne?' asked Zara in return. "'I barely recollect him in former days, but I and Edith met him about ten days ago, and he remembered and spoke to her.' The song required her attention, and though she would fain have played the symphony over again, she was afraid her father would remark it, and went on to sing the last two stanzas. As soon as she had concluded, however, she said in a low, quick voice, "'He is a very extraordinary man.' "'Can you give me any sign by which I should know him?' asked Digby. "'He has now got a number of blue lines traced on his face,' answered Zara. "'He went abroad to preach to the savages, I have heard.' He is a good man, but very eccentric. At the same moment the voice of her father was raised, saying, I wish, my dear, you would not sing such melancholy things as that. Cannot you find something gayer? I do not like young ladies singing such dull ditties, only fit for sentimental misses of the true French school. What was the true French school of his day I cannot tell. Certainly it must have been very different from the present. "'Perhaps said Edward Digby will sing something more cheerful himself,' answered Zara. "'Oh, I am a very bad musician,' replied the young officer. "'I cannot even accompany myself. "'If you will, and have any of the few things I know, "'I shall be very happy. "'In everything one can but try,' he added in a low voice, "'still hoping for the best.' "'Zara looked over her collection of music with him, "'and at last she opened one song, "'which was somewhat popular in those times, "'though it has long fallen into well-merited oblivion. 
"'Can you venture to sing that?' she asked, pointing to the words rather than the music. "'It is quite a soldier's song.' Sir Edward Digby read the first line, and thinking he observed a double meaning in her question, he answered, "'Oh, yes, that I will, if you will consent to accompany me.' Zara smiled and sat down to the instrument again, and the reader must judge from the song itself whether the young officer's conjecture that her words had an enigmatical sense was just or not. The Officer's Song A star is still beaming beyond the grey cloud, its light rays are streaming with nothing to shroud, and the star shall be there when the clouds pass away, its lustre unchanging, immortal its ray. "'Tis the guide of the true heart, in field or on sea, "'tis the hope of the slave and the trust of the free, "'the light of the lover, whatever assail, "'the strength of the honest that never can fail. "'Waft, waft, thou light wind, from the peace-giving ray, "'the vapours of sorrow that over it stray, "'and let it pour forth all unshrouded and bright, "'that those who now mourn may rejoice in its light.' "'God grant it,' murmured the voice of Sir Robert Croyland. "'Zara said, "'Amen,' in her heart, "'and in a minute or two after her father rose and left the room. "'During the rest of the evening "'nothing very important occurred in Harborne House. "'Mrs. Barbara played her usual part "'and would contribute to Sir Edward Digby's amusement "'in a most uncomfortable manner. "'The following morning, too, "'went by without any incident of importance.' till about ten o'clock when breakfast just being over and Zara having been called from the room by her maid, Sir Robert's butler announced to his master that the groom had returned from Mr. Croyland's. "'Where is the note?' demanded his master eagerly. "'He has not brought one, Sir Robert,' replied the servant. "'Only a message, sir, to say that Mr. Croyland is very sorry he cannot spare the horses today, as they were out a long way yesterday.' Sir Robert Croyland started up in a state of fury not at all becoming. He stamped, he even swore. But we have got rid of a great many of the vices of those times, and swearing was so common at the period I speak of, that it did not even startle Mrs. Barbara. Her efforts, however, to soothe her brother only served to irritate him the more, and next he swore at her, which did surprise her mightily. He then fell into a fit of thought which ended in his saying aloud, "'Yes, that must be the way. "'It is his business, and so—' "'But Sir Robert did not conclude the sentence, "'retiring to his own sitting-room, "'and there writing a letter. "'When he had done, he paused and meditated, "'his mind rambling over many subjects, "'though still occupied intensely with only one. "'I am a most unfortunate man,' he thought. "'Nothing since that wretched day has ever gone right with me. "'Even trifles combine to frustrate everything I attempt.' "'Would I had died many years ago. "'Poor Edith, poor girl, she must know more sorrow still, "'and yet it must be done or I am lost. "'If that wretched youth had been killed in that affray yesterday, "'it would have all been over. "'Was there no bullet that could find him? "'And yet perhaps it might not have had the effect. "'No, no, there would have been some new kind of demand "'from that greedy, craving scoundrel. "'May there not be such even now?' Will he give up that fatal paper? He shall, by heaven, he shall. But I must send the letter. Sir Edward Digby will think this all very strange. How unfortunate that it should have happened just when he was here. Would to heaven I had any one to consult with. But I am lone, lone indeed. My wife, my sons, my friends, gone, gone. 
all gone, and is very sad, and after having mused for several minutes more, he rang the bell, gave the servant who appeared the letter which he had just written, and directed him to take it over to Mr. Radford's as soon as possible. Returning to the room which he had previously left, without bestowing one word upon Mrs. Barbara, whom he passed in the corridor, Sir Robert Croyland entered into conversation with Sir Edward Digby, and strove, though with too evident an effort, to appear careless and unconcerned. In the meantime, however, we must notice what was passing in the corridor, for it was of some importance, though, like many other important things, it was transacted very quietly. Mrs. Barbara had overheard Sir Robert's directions to the servant, and she had seen the man, as he went away, to get ready the pony, which was usually sent in the morning to the post, deposit the note he had received upon an antique piece of furniture, a large marble table, with great sprawling gilt legs, which stood in the hall, close to the double doors that led to the offices. Now Mrs. Barbara was one of the most benevolent people on earth. She literally overflowed with the milk of human kindness, and if a few drops of that same milk occasionally spotted the apron of her morality, which we cannot help acknowledging was sometimes the case, she thought, as a great many other people do of a great many other sins, that there was no great harm in it, if the motive was good. This was one of those cases and occasions when the milk was beginning to run over. She had a deep regard for her brother, she would have sacrificed her right hand for him, and she was quite sure that something very sad had happened to vex him, or he never would have thought of swearing at her. She would have done, she was ready to do, anything in the world to help him, but how could she help him without knowing what he was vexed about? It is wonderful how many lines the devil always has out for those who are disposed to take a bait. Something whispered to Mrs. Barbara as she gazed at the letter. The whole story is in there. Ah, Mrs. Barbara, do not take it up and look at the address. It is dangerous, very dangerous. But Mrs. Barbara did take it up and looked at the address, and then at the two ends. It was folded as a note, unfortunately, and she thought, there can be no harm, for sure. I won't open it. Though I've seen him open Edith's letter, poor thing. I shall hear the man pull back the inner door, and can put it down in a minute. Nobody else can see me here, and if I could but find out what is vexing him, I might have some way of helping him. I'm sure I intend well. All this argumentation in Mrs. Barbara's mind took up the space of about three seconds, and then the note, pressed between two fingers in the most approved fashion, was applied as a telescope to her eye, to get a perspective view of the cause of her brother's irritation. I must make the reader a party to the transaction, I am afraid, and let him know the words which Mrs. Barbara read. My dear Radford, the note began, as misfortune would have it, all my horses have been taken out of the stable and have not been brought back. I fear that they have fallen into other hands than those that borrowed them, and my brother Zachary has one of his crabbed moods upon him and will not lend his carriage to bring Edith back. If your horses have not gone as well as mine, I should feel particularly obliged by your sending them down here to take over my coach to Zachary's and bring Edith back, for I do not wish her to stay there any longer, as the marriage is to take place so soon. 
If you can come over tomorrow, we can settle whether it is to be at your house or here, though I should prefer it here, if you have no objection. There seemed to be a few words more, but it took Mrs. Barbara longer to decipher the above lines, in the actual position of the note, than it might have done, had the paper been spread out fair before her so that, just as she was moving it a little, to get at the rest, the sound of the father of the two doors being thrown open, interrupted her proceedings, and laying down the letter quickly, she darted away, full of the important intelligence which she had acquired. End of chapter 4